0: You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley Rhine, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation in law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Today's episode features Megan Brown, Nova Daly, and Mike Diakuski discussing a range of cyber and CFIUS provisions and recommendations included in the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act, as well as their implications across all industries.
1: Welcome to Wiley Connected, where Wiley Ryan lawyers and guests talk about important issues at the intersection of law, tech, and public policy. Today, we are covering the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act. The appropriations law authorizes $716 billion in national defense budget and includes wide-ranging provisions on cybersecurity, touching everything from enhancing the military's ability to respond to cyber attacks to protecting the IT supply chain and encouraging greater public and private collaboration. My name is Mike Diakuski, an associate at the firm focused on cyber and national security issues and government investigations. Previously, I was at the Department of Homeland Security, where I served as Counselor to the Secretary and, before that, in the Office of the General Counsel. And I'm joined by
0: Megan Brown, partner in Wiley Ryan's telecom media and technology practice with a focus on cybersecurity and data security.
2: Nova Daly, Senior Public Policy Advisor at the firm, focusing on CFIUS and national security and trade-related matters. Thank you both for being here.
1: So, Megan, why is the 2019 NDAA important to companies in the tech sector?
0: Well, the 2019 NDAA, otherwise known as the McCain Bill, has a lot of provisions in it that are not normally in the NDAA. Typically, the NDAA is focused on government contracting, defense appropriations, and sort of the the guns and butter type issues. This NDAA came after several months of intense debate over things like trade policy, in foreign investment in the United States, and various aspects affecting the tech sector. So we see a lot in here related to both cyber and national security that tech companies have to pay attention to in a way that they didn't in past years' NDAA. Things like looking at telecom equipment additional authorities for critical infrastructure collaboration that's going to touch the private sector, enhanced roles for certain federal government agencies, and overall enhanced scrutiny of the information and communications technology sector and its interactions with the government.
1: Nova, looking at the big picture, what about the NDA jumped out at you that tech companies should be aware of?
2: Well, clearly the new CFIUS law is significant, and it was designed and came forth due to a real congressional and administrative drive to deal with Chinese acquisitions of critical technology companies here in the United States. Other portions of the bill that are important for technology companies are some of the restrictions on acquisitions of Chinese technology equipment. And as Megan noted, surely the cyber provisions are very important. But again, the biggest issue here is that Congress and the administration are aligned in dealing and protecting U.S. national security, and especially in the technology world. The NDA also outlines more aggressive posture on cybersecurity
1: for the government writ large across both military and civilian agencies. This is consistent with what we've seen from DHS, the Department of Justice, and agencies at Commerce and around government.
0: That's right Mike. The NDAA calls for international norms and some better rules of engagement for cyber warfare. There's been a hunger for that kind of guidance from the federal government for a while because cybersecurity is inherently international. The cyber attacks we see from hostile nation states often are met with uncertainty about what are the triggers for United States response. So this bill tackles that in part. It states that the policy of the United States is to enhance deterrence and to foreign powers and calls on the United States to employ all instruments of national power, including offensive cyber capabilities. They're including in these concerns attacks against critical infrastructure. And this is why this bill has such import for the private sector because so much of the United States' critical infrastructure is in the hands of the private sector. So this bill really reflects a unified approach, as NOVA indicated, between uh, Congress and the executive branch to say cyber is an increasingly scary challenge for the United States, and we really need to make it the policy of the United States to send a message, as DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen has been saying, that we're not going to take this lying down anymore. We're going to punch back.
1: Thanks, Megan. How is this different than what we've seen in the past in terms of government involvement, particularly with the critical infrastructure sector?
0: Well, there's decades of history of critical infrastructure companies working with the government in a variety of settings and ways. What we're seeing now, I think, is really a ratcheting up of that. Across the board, there are more calls from the government for collaboration on what they call collective defense. The Department of Justice and the FBI are working aggressively with the private sector, for example, to disrupt attacks, taking down a botnet or sharing information requires a level of collaboration and creativity that they're really amping up with this bill and with other complementary activities. The NDA codifies several parts of U.S. cyber defense, and it establishes this more aggressive posture about using all instruments of national power. It also is going to increasingly drive collaboration with the private sector because it establishes a new cybersecurity solarium commission that's supposed to look at various options for a more robust national defense, including deterrence, active disruption of adversary attacks. And that necessarily is going to have the government looking at its toolbox, which includes collaboration with the private sector who have um, unique skills, but also possess critical infrastructure. Uh, one thing to point out, though, that the NDAA does not do is in this panoply of options the government's looking at, the NDAA does not encourage the federal government to, nor does it change federal law about private sector cybersecurity activities or so-called active defense. Recently, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse called for Congress to look at whether and how Congress should authorize private hackback as a way to augment what the federal government's doing. This, however, has been a really controversial issue for some time. A congressman, Tom Graves, has a bill pending in the House that would exempt certain activities from the Federal Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to allow certain active defense techniques. This is a tough question from my perspective. Uh, Authorizing vigilantism on the Internet is not a great policy outcome, but this shows the willingness of U.S. policymakers to look at creative solutions and increasingly expect the private sector to do more.
1: Nova, as you mentioned, an important part of the NDA is the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, or FIRMA. This will significantly expand the jurisdiction and operational mandate of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS. Given your experience managing CFIUS at Treasury and work for clients on these issues, how big of a deal is FIRMA?
2: Thanks, Mike. That's a great question. And yes, as I referred to earlier, the change in the CFIUS process is the new FIRMA bill that was passed as part of the NDAA. It's a very big deal in terms of the CFIUS world. When I was at Treasury helping manage the CFIUS process back in 2000. Six to 2009, one of the big issues that came out there and, and there was a transaction, the Dubai Ports World transaction, where a foreign act acquired the ability to manage U.S. ports. And it caused quite an uproar. And we had to deal with that, tamp it down, and address the national security issues. But what arose from it was a new serious bill back then called FINSA. And that bill essentially was to deal with sort of the infrastructure, the acquisitions of manufacturing, semiconductors was a part of it. But the technology side of CFIUS's focus was never completely there. So this new bill makes some big changes and realigns CFIUS and modernizes it to deal with the new technology issues that we face today. So to sort of go into... Some of the key changes that are happening in this bill, well, certain investments in critical technologies and critical infrastructure companies and companies that maintain or collect sensitive personal data on U.S. citizens are now going to be subject to CFIUS jurisdiction if the investment can afford the foreign person access to material non-public information. So in the past, there was a control standard. Did the foreign company acquire control of the U.S. business? Now it's a different standard. Do they have access to sensitive information or non-proprietary information about a company? That confers CFIUS jurisdiction now, which is a big difference. Other big issues that are out there, real estate deals that were considered greenfield and not subject to CFIUS are now subject to CFIUS review, especially if they are real estate acquisitions near military bases or ports and sensitive areas. What I think is also the biggest change in CFIUS is now it's mandatory. For certain transactions. In the past, it was always a voluntary process because we wanted an open investment environment in the United States. Now for certain transactions where it's a foreign government controlled acquisition over 10% of more than 10% in a US business, they have to, by law, file with CFIUS before they close a the transaction. Now it's not a full filing, it's a notice, it's a declaration, five page. So it's short, it shouldn't be too hard, but it requires them to file before they close a the transaction, which will help keep a spotlight on where state-owned enterprises are investing in the private market. That's a big change there. Filing fees, other changes that are important. Now CFIUS can require filing fees, whereas in the past it was something the U.S. government, the taxpayer paid for. Now companies will pay for their own process. Extended timetables, used to be a 30-day review to start things off and then maybe a 45-day investigation. Now that 30-day review is 45 days. Mitigation agreements, those are conditions placed on investment so CFIAs can clear it where they require things such as board membership or the company to split off a portion of the U.S. business. Now that mitigation is expanded in terms of their jurisdiction to require mitigation, to review mitigation, and also to reopen transactions where mitigations are violated. Information sharing is another key change. In the past, we really felt that by law, we were constrained in the process and could only discuss and deliberate within the U.S. government. Now the new law allows CFIUS and its agencies to go out to our foreign partners and talk to them about investment that has global implications. So that'll be important with addressing issues with our allies where we have and share a national security issue. And then the last sort of issue to bring to light is pilot programs. Although CFIUS regulations and the new laws won't really go into effect until regulations are finalized, which could be a year from now or more, The new bill allows CFIUS to put in place pilot programs that implement provisions that can't go into effect until regulations, but allow it to be implemented immediately. So you could see pilot programs on mandatory declarations, on real estate transactions and whatnot.
1: You raised the issue of critical technologies. Given our audience here, can you elaborate on how CFIUS will interpret critical technologies moving forward and what this means for potential investments?
2: Absolutely, Michael. So, of course, the standard definition of critical technology remains. So, items subject to international traffic in arms rules, those deal with things that have a military component. But the new change that CFIUS is making is that there's going to be critical technologies that also involved emerging Or foundational technologies. So, what is that? What are those technologies? And what does that mean for the technology companies? Well, I think the way to sort of get an approach, because this is a process that's gonna be discovered and determined by commerce, I think the way to understand where they're gonna go on this is to look at what China is doing in the China made in 2025. Initiative. So, what China is focused on and where the US is going to be focused on in terms of new and foundational technologies will be things like advanced information technologies, AI, automated machines and tools, robotics, aerospace, aeronautic equipment, marine equipment, high tech shipping, modern rail, new energy vehicles, power equipment, ag equipment, new materials, and biopharma. Not a small list. No, certainly not. Is there anything else that tech companies should keep in mind here? Yeah, I think just three things, and I might've mentioned them all earlier, but originally the bill gave CFIUS jurisdiction over IP transfers with associated services. That would have made a huge expansion. So imagine if CFIUS could review any IP transfer that had associated services that happened anytime. That was pulled back out of the bill and was placed back into the jurisdiction of the Commerce Department. But make no mistake about it, Commerce is going to take this duty very seriously. And so you could see a lot of changes in how Commerce Forces its export control laws. Again, as I mentioned, the mandatory declarations are a sea change for CFIUS, and I think something that folks need to keep an eye on. And the last issue, of course, the pilot programs. So folks should keep an eye on when they come out. It'll be require a federal register notice in terms of what the administration is going to do, but that could happen really soon. We'll keep our eyes peeled. Megan, speaking of critical technologies,
1: one of the provisions in the NDAA prohibits executive agency heads from using or procuring certain telecom and video surveillance equipment. What's the significance of this?
0: Well, this provision in the NDAA actually is sort of a compromise after months of back and forth, particularly in the Senate, over concerns about China's impact on the supply chains that come into the United States networks as well as federal agency networks. So, a high profile issue the Commerce Department earlier this year had issued a denial order against the Chinese manufacturer ZTE for some violations of law that it had agreed to settle in effect. That denial order was extremely disruptive to parts of the global information and communications technology supply chain. It also became very political very quickly. The Trump administration was trying to work out an accommodation to alleviate some of these unintended consequences when several folks in the Senate took exception to what they thought was an attempt to revive ZTE, which in their view was a company that was a very clear threat to the security of the United States, along with other Chinese companies that have been identified in the past as having national security risks due to their ties to the Chinese military. So what happened in the NDAA was after several rounds of public statements and draft bills, we ended up here, which is a restriction on federal agencies procuring equipment from these companies. But you can hear from this clip of, for example, Senator Tom Cotton being very concerned about ZTE and the administration's position. And finally, our amendment would reinstate the original denial order for the purchase of American goods and service on ZTE to hold it accountable for breaking our laws. Now, I would say I don't see this amendment as contradictory or harmful to the administration's strategy when it comes to China and North Korea. If anything, I think it's complementary. Likewise, Senator Warner has expressed serious reservations and concerns about Chinese telecom carriers' impact on United States networks. Hitting ZTE with a fine or putting additional compliance team in does not get rid of the backdoors that are built into this technology.
1: Again, my background was in this field, and Let's listen to our national security experts and not have this equipment, in effect, permeate all over our country that would pose a huge national security risk.
0: But the end result in the NDAA is a compromise. Some senators really wanted to reinstitute all of the provisions in that original denial order, which barred, for present purposes, really any interactions with CTE in China. The senators wanted to put that back in by virtue of U.S. law. But that didn't make it into the final NDAA, and this is really focused on federal agency procurement. It won't be the last we hear about these issues, though, because supply chain issues for the telecom sector and the IT sector are top of mind across the government.
1: Megan, how will the NDAA impact players across the information and communications technology supply chain?
0: Well, the Department of Homeland Security and several other agencies have been discussing this for some time and are launching efforts, including a public-private task force, We've talked about this topic recently on the podcast at the DHS National Cybersecurity Summit. They launched the National Risk Management Center. That's going to be looking at supply chain security in parallel with other activities, such as the Federal Communications Commission is looking at supply chain security under its Universal Service Fund efforts. So there's a lot of interest in cybersecurity and the supply chain. In the NDAA, there's other provisions about Disclosures to the Department of Defense about certain foreign government access and activities. The Department of Defense can take certain steps to mitigate perceived risks. Again, that's focused on the contracting supply chain for federal agencies, but they also call for a study on the costs and benefits of new technologies, including cloud based programs and software related to sensitive programs. So these are just small examples of the many efforts that are going to continue on supply chain issues, which to me says the tech sector That either feeds into those supply chains or is ultimately going to be affected by the broadening of these obligations really needs to pay attention and start thinking about what they'll do if their supply chains become tightened because of United States government interest.
1: DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, has emerged as central to the government's overall strategy on cybersecurity. That's even emphasized in the NDAA. What in the bill stood out to you, Megan?
0: Well, one thing that was notable was the NDAA establishes some pilot programs to send Department of Defense professionals over to DHS to work on critical infrastructure cybersecurity. They're also going to model some cyber attacks on critical infrastructure to try and improve collaboration and information sharing across the federal government and with the private sector. So I think the folks who are involved in critical infrastructure and the folks who supply critical infrastructure in terms of software, hardware, components, need to be paying attention to what the government's doing here because they're on high alert. Kirsten Nielsen has repeatedly said the red lights are blinking and we are right on the edge of a major attack. They are ratcheting up their efforts. And so we're seeing this increased collaboration and scrutiny of the private sector, as well as a blurring of lines between the civilian agencies and the military agencies. For example, the NDAA calls for a greater role for U.S. Cyber Command to coordinate a lot of these efforts with the private sector. I think five or six years ago, that would have been more controversial. That's now sort of the way this administration is going to go, treating the need to protect critical infrastructure as part of its core government function.
1: And we've also observed how NIST and NTIA at the Department of Commerce are becoming increasingly influential on the private sector through various initiatives and cybersecurity standards setting. Do you care to comment on that?
0: Yeah, I think what we're going to see is an increased role, especially for the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is within the Department of Commerce and plays a big role on cybersecurity. You know, the bill has some provisions for a certification program for DOD, some other activities, but we're seeing increasing taskings to NIST from Congress and the agencies to try and address cybersecurity, improve both the private sector and the public sector's approaches.
1: Nova and Megan, thanks for walking us through just a few of the important national and cybersecurity issues raised by the NDA. Is there anything else you'd like to share?
2: Yeah, I guess I just, in closing, say that it's a highly energized time, especially the U.S.-China relationship and for technology and changes in technology, whether it's automation and whether that's in how we look at technology in terms of trade. So this is a dynamic time period. This administration is doing a lot where it concerns trade and technology sector. So, keeping abreast of where things are going, what the rules of the
0: road are, is
2: key to being a successful enterprise.
0: I think the private sector needs to look at these trends. We've always told clients that the government contracting space and the Department of Defense is really the tip of the spear for cybersecurity. I see that more and more every year. This NDAA is consistent with that, and I think the private sector is going to feel the ripple effects of the cyber activities authorized under the NDAA. So in closing, thanks for listening to the latest installment of our Wiley Connected podcast. We look forward to the next edition where we'll talk about tech and policy. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast, brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley Rhine LLP. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to wileyconnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.